That's really okay, is that better? That's a little better, right? Okay. Oh, that's still too loud. <laughs> All right. Sorry, somebody today explicitly asked, hey, why aren't we recording these things anymore? And <laughs> so we'll do it, right? Uh, it is... April the 18th, and this is lesson 29 in our Disciple Workbook. And, um, oh my goodness, it's 28. <laughs> Just kidding. You didn't miss anything. Um, and I do have another wine I'll send around. And I also have, in addition to the chocolates, um, some peanut butter cookies and looks like some lemon and almond bars. It's a small harvest leftover from opening night. So please help yourself, and I'll send those that way. <laughs> okay. <coughs> I don't know if this is going to work, but we're, we're going to try it. <coughs> Just a few remarks about Galatians, if it's okay, and then let's see what you, what you thought. Did you notice how short the greeting was? So in 1 Corinthians, there's a whole chapter of greeting, like, to all the holy people, and I'm so impressed with you, and thank you. Here it is, Paul and his apostles sent by God, the next verse. What's your problem? <laughs> <laughs> this is a rather, um, <clears throat> well, chiding document in front of us, wouldn't you say? Uh, and you should know, in fact, that um, the translators <clears throat> really try not to give you the wooden translation in which Paul uses profanity and says things like, <clears throat> as for those Judaizers, the circumcisers of the flesh, I wish they would just cut the whole thing off themselves. Um, <clears throat> if you got that in your translation, you got a good one, because that's how it reads in Greek. I'm suspicious you didn't. <laughs> um, but, but that's Paul for you here. Um, I, I think it might be helpful to start with my terrible question, which is what the Galatians did for you. So this is my terrible question, and I know it's poorly phrased. But what did Galatians do for you, particularly, we've gone Romans, Corinthians, different themes. A lot of chastising and admonishing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a nice thing about the fruits of the Spirit, which is a sweet one, right? And then, and then there's no um, Jew or, or Gentiles, slave or free, male or female. Like, that's sort of a nice thing that often gets quoted, right? And then, then there's not a lot of other things that are just immediately quotable. <laughs> Thanks. It certainly was a memory verse when I was like seven, right? I mean, it's one of those critical ones. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, right? Against such things there is no law. Seven, right? That's what we, so we learned that one. It's good. Of course, you know, I think I read this really interesting commentary that said that the, 
that everybody has the seeds of the fruit of the Spirit, and whether or not they bear fruit, of course, depends upon our cultivation. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's good. And, and a reminder about these things that we often forget is that these aren't feeling words, they're practices. Right? So nobody feels like being gentle. The question is whether you practice being gentle. <laughs> and nobody feels like being patient. I mean, come on, that's no standard to judge yourself. The, qu- the question is whether you practice it, right? And, and if you practice it, then fruits come from those seeds, right? That was the little, the little <laughs> thought I read, which seems, like, seems, seems good. Um, other observations, reactions from Galatians. Yeah, Paul does a couple of things here that we've talked about. Remember that that um, there's f- four, you know, when you read the text, if you're Jewish, there's the Torah, and then there's the commentary on the Torah, and then there's the commentary on the commentary. So those are three parallel strains. And then, depending what you're reading, there might also be the Midrash. And the Midrash is where people fill in either... Um, holes in the text. Remember, that's where the Lilith myth came from, is there's a creation story in Genesis 1, there's a creation story in Genesis 2, so why did God have to do it again? The Midrash presumes that there was a man and a woman, and then that went wrong, and God had to make another woman. So who was the first woman? Lilith, the snake lady, right? This is, that's where the legend comes from, from the Midrash. Well, Paul actually is doing Midrashic reading here, and in some ways, it's very metaphoric and figurative, and, and in, in other ways, it's sort of downright offensive. So, so one of them, right, is that, hey, remember Abraham? He had two children. He had more than that. But he had two children. <laughs> he did. He did, because he married Keturah later, and he had some other kids. But he had the child by Hagar, and he had the child by Sarah. And Paul says there's two ways of being. There's the child of slavery, and then there's the child of freedom and promise. So it's figurative, except in the Torah, like it's a real story. And it's, so it's kind of weird to say if you're the slave wife's son, you're a child of slavery. Like that's just not okay for me. You know, that's just kind of patently offensive. That read, maybe I'm the only one. It just sort of bothers me to say that Hagar's son is patently inferior to Sarah because Hagar was a slave. Now, now keep in mind, actually, that makes Abraham more of a scumbag in my, in my book, right? Um, but this is not what Paul's doing. He's not discussing the social justice of, of, of the event. He's, he's putting a figurative or allegorical reading on top of the text. Not doubting the historicity of it, but also saying it's an allegory, right? And he does that other interesting thing with Abraham. He says, <laughs> he grumbles. He has a hard time with this. Um, she, she's probably doing something bad. So, 
the other thing he says, right, is that God made the promise to Abraham before there was a law, before the Torah was given. So righteousness precedes the law. That's Paul's argument. But the question is, whose righteousness precedes the law? Abraham's or God's? And he doesn't, Paul doesn't really answer that question, which seems to be really important. So, so uh, those are a couple of readings that, that Paul employs, and it's traditional, some typical Jewish technique to do this. And, and again, you, you might find readings like that written around the Torah by different rabbis that are kind of wildly allegorical and are, are filling in cognitive, cognitive gaps. He seems really concerned, don't you think, with different cultures and how you appropriate that. And I don't know how you feel about this. Do you feel like Paul ever gives a really clear answer about what Jews and Gentiles are supposed to do? Yeah, sure. But let me maybe ask you, thinking outside of Galatians, if any of you have ever had to share space or relationships with people who had very different cultural, moral, religious values than yourself, and what kind of tension that created and sort of how you walked the line. Is anybody willing to share about that? In this book, reminder, it's circumcision and the kind of food you eat. So let me, let me ask you first, anybody ever had food issues with people that they care about? Relationships? found those to be div divisive, potentially. I had a roommate in college who was Jewish, so I went to their home, her family's home, and I had to eat off different dishes. Oh, okay, because you weren't Jewish, you couldn't have the Jewish dishes. Is that what you mean? Right. Yeah, no, I think that's okay, and did that, ha and you just, did you, I mean, how did that feel for you? You felt excluded, sure, sure. Have you ever prepared something for somebody and they categorically rejected what you prepared because they don't eat gluten or meat? Anybody had that experience? Is that hurtful to feelings at all? Here's an intenser one. Have you ever asked gone out of your way to make what you were supposed to make, and then it, it wasn't right. Anybody had that experience before? Yeah, it could be regular food. Like, let's pretend you know somebody's got a food thing, and, and you say, well, okay, what can you have, right? And so you go out of your way to make that, and then they, no, I, I can't, no. No one's had that one? Yeah, I've had that one. Yeah, I've had that one. It's real sweet. It's real endearing. Yeah. It, by the way, this is not even religious yet. This is cultural, right? That's what we're talking about. Um, I used to, I'll volunteer just a quick story for Susan. Um, I have this tendency when I do things to like really do them. So I got into like, like the, the whole organic sort of thing. And, and you know, like, 
buying live meat and things like that. And um, I just couldn't eat at my mother-in-law's home because she cooked everything out of a can. And um, it wasn't that I just conscientiously objected to that. It was like it made me sick to, to eat it because there were so many preservatives and salt that I wasn't cooking. And so, and, and she actually didn't really particularly care for the food I ate. I, I'm not sure why, but she didn't. So we didn't, we didn't really share food. And this like healthy lifestyle eating actually excluded a lot of common meal. I mean, I just kind of had to give it up because you couldn't eat with anybody and you couldn't go to restaurants. So you just couldn't do that because it, it wasn't always right. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. And that's not a religious thing. That's, a, that's just a complete like cultural thing. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, it's both. He never had had ham. Hmm. How about if you've ever had kids, if you've ever raised kids or been around kids, there's these things where you take your kids somewhere with your friends. Now, you're friends, but you have different, like, moral, normative values in the home. I'll just make one up. Let's pretend in your home you don't use profanity in front of your children or you don't use it at all, and you have a really good friend who freely uses profanity in front of all children, right? Anybody had to navigate something like that before? It may not even be with kids. It could be with different families. Like you, in your family, you didn't do that, and now you're, you're visiting a family, and, and there you are. <laughs> and you love each other, and listen, you all know, you all know that you're committed to the friendship, but you don't want your kids talking like that. Does that get, is that one of those lines to walk? What do you say? You say, tell your kids, I'm just guessing. Sweetie, we just don't use words like that in our house. Anybody said something like that to their kids before, right? Which makes a lot of sense, except what you're saying to your kids, right, is we're different from them. Which is, of course, what you want. <laughs> and then how to perceive difference non-judgmentally is the trick. <coughs> Anybody had to wrestle with these things before? They're just telling house rules. Yeah. Um, or is it something if you know ahead of time or that happens and you, you talk to 
the way we do and just love him anyway or something like that? Um, or do you do it afterwards when you realize your child has been exposed to microbes and you don't know? Or is it on television these days and it's microbes so you don't really encourage them to use them? Of course, I think the difficult thing is you educate your kids, right, is to say, there's different ways of doing things. Of course, what we're really telling our kids is we believe ours to be the best. <laughs> so when you encounter something that's second rate, try not to be too judgmental about it. Now, listen, I tell my kids we don't use that word in our house. This, I, I, I'm just telling you that quickly. And there's words we don't use in our house that are very common in lots of other homes just because that's just what I do. And... Um, I don't know what they think of it, but, but, I, but I know that there's this tendency that trying to do that and saying, like, we have our house rules, they have theirs, they're different, can lead into divisions by rank. And I'll just give you a great example if it sounds like I'm talking crazy. My mother grew up in um, a farm in Kentucky, and she had one white set of clothes, just one because they were very poor. And it was critical that the white clothes always be stain-free. Because the only people whose white clothes had stains on them, can you guess, were a phrase we don't even use anymore. White trash. Well, maybe people use that anymore. I don't think teenagers say that. You know, but that was like my mother's biggest fear. It was okay to be poor, but you couldn't be white trash. <laughs> and so... It's an interesting thing, isn't it, right? Because poverty is one thing, white trashiness is another thing. And w there's a sharp division between, between those two, right? And of course, it's interesting that in some impoverished people would look at middle class people and still label them as white trash by their behavior. You're very familiar with this practice, I hope, right? This is what's happening in Galatians. I just want, I just want to point this out. And this is what we're doing at a number of levels, uh, struggling with. And maybe not that phrase, and maybe not what we do with our kids, but I think it's really tough. I um, had an officer come to my home, who's a friend of mine, he's a really good friend actually, and he asked me one day, um, he's a Latino officer in Nassau Bay, and he, we were just talking about things, and he said, you know, hey, um, what color are your kids' friends in this neighborhood? And I said, come on, you know, come on, don't ask me a question like that. That's not okay. He was like, just tell me. And the follow-up he said was, in this neighborhood, if his friends are race A, B, C, they're, they're up to no good. That was the police perspective. This is what Galatians is about. <laughs> Um, we interviewed some curates a couple of weeks ago. These are people who would be like, like the associate rector, but not exactly, just kind of, right? So they'd be here. And, and it was really fantastic. There were four people, and they were really, really different people. They were really neat. Uh, there, was a, there was a Connecticut Yankee. I mean, it really, like he had like a gold safety pin tacking his shirt together under his tie. I'd never, never even seen that. Uh, 
it's a tie clip. I've never seen that. I have buttons on my, you know, I just used to buttons or nothing, you know. Anyway, so, so yeah, I mean, he was really, he was, he, they were all really great people, but this is how different they were. The next person was a mom with some young kids, and, and um, gosh, she was going to drive an hour to come here. I mean, interesting lady, really warm person. And then the third lady had a nose ring from when she lived in India, and she had a tattoo on her wrist really different. And then the fourth guy was like a 45-year-old black man from the Missionary Baptist Church. We have four really different people come in, right? All very gifted, really interesting people, you know? And um, <clears throat> I hope this is okay to say, but um, we, we made sure we asked questions, like particularly the lady with the nose thing and the, this thing, you know, like, what do you do with parishioners that don't like that? because I can't imagine a priest with a tattoo or a piercing. I just can't. So, I, you know, she, and she gave, she gave a fine answer. I mean, I think she was caught off guard a little bit, but she answered, and it was fine, you know. And, and with our, the last guy, you know, who kind of identified, you know, that often as a black man in the Episcopal Church, like he's the only black face in the room. And, and he identified some discomfort with that, you know. But he also sort of said realistically, like I know, I know that that's, most of my ministry is going to be that way, right? And, um, and he mentioned a couple other things that sort of showed up about social justice and racism, right? And, and um, you know, it, it, it sort of uh, is this thing like, oh, um, you've mentioned that more than once. That might be an important issue for, for you. Um, how often do you think we would have to hear that here? Because I don't want to hear too much about that, you know, because that might be too much, which is an interesting thing to think about, right? This is somebody for whom that's an issue every day of his life. And how many of you on a daily basis feel like the color of your skin influences the way people look at you? I mean, on a daily basis. Anybody ever had that feeling? I have had that feeling, like a few times in my life. And because there is only a few, I like remember them intensely. Like I got on a bus and I was the one white person on the bus in Compton and nobody was looking at me mean. We just all knew I didn't belong on that bus, right? So we just sat there quietly and I got off the bus when, and I rode it all the way, you know, but we just all knew like I was a tourist on that bus. We, that was just clear, right? And I told you this one time, I went somewhere in Nazareth, which is an Arab neighborhood, and I turned down a home district. I wasn't on the main street anymore. And some Arab boys were following me and they started throwing some rocks at me. Um, they didn't hit me. They were way smaller. They were yelling. I didn't know what I was doing. I sort of was like, ooh, like panic response, though, you know, because I clearly did not belong there. This is what Galatians is about. <laughs> These problems that are real problems. Yeah, I mean, the sign for being Jewish is that you're a circumcised man. So this, remember, when Paul says no male or female, that's relatively new because since women can't be circumcised, they cannot be in the same covenant position as men can be. 
Right, so, so when the entry rite changes from circumcision to baptism, then that allows both genders equal access. And so the other thing that's happening, right, is that you've got Jewish people who have been circumcised, who are keeping kosher, and you've got other people coming in not doing those things. And of course, there's natural jockeying for position, which happens in any human organization. We want to know how can I outrank somebody else? Well, you could get circumcised, Geez, that sounds difficult. I'll do it, and then I'll be better than people who can't do it or won't do it, you know? And it's really tough because if you're Jewish, that was the marker you wore on your body about being set apart. Greek people didn't do that for a couple of reasons. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, it would just really hurt. People would put up with pain. I mean, really, people do painful things all the time. I think that the issue, if you're Greek, is this is not just going to hurt you as an adult male, it, it, it is, everyone's going to know that you've done it. There's no hiding that because Greek people exercise naked and they love the human body and all that business. And then the other thing is culturally, it's such a 180 because you grew up where you exercise naked and you love the human body. <laughs> and this looks like mortification or something, right? So that's just a really hard card to flip when you've grown up with a totally different point of view. And the Jewish people didn't pick it for themselves. It happened when they were eight days old. They had no choice. And so then they grew up hearing that that was this important thing that had happened to them. Right? Now, now this has got religious meaning, but in some ways what I've described is really cultural identity. And then how do you say, well, listen, we're all free, but we look different and it, this has meant so much for so long, let's just not worry about that anymore. It's just really hard. Uh, and I think that's what's going on. And, and again, there's some one-upmanship going on. And um, I think Paul sputters a little bit. I think he's clearer here than he was in Corinthians about pushing things to their logical conclusion, right? His principal argument seems to be, if you take up circumcision, you'd better take up everything else as well. But having taken that stuff up myself, which I did better than you're going to do, it wasn't life-giving. <laughs> so if you're going to pick up circumcision, you also need to pick up not healing on the Sabbath day, and if your donkey falls in the well, not getting it out, not touching women, no more crawfish boils. Like You had to pick all that stuff up at the same time. You didn't just pick up one piece because you think it personifies extreme faith. This is small for us, right? Anybody ever made you uncomfortable in a worship service with their piety? I will raise both of my hands. I don't even mean the guy who interrupted me when I was talking one day. I mean, like, some people's piety is, like, strange to me. Yeah, or... Or I get, I get weird airs about it. Not necessarily even because they're speaking in tongues and like rolling on the floor. I've been to those places. And that's sort of odd to me. But sometimes I get airs of like, I don't know, like just, I can't even say that. Like, I get this weird sort of vibe from what somebody else is doing about it being very like put on and judgmental and, and nasty. I don't know if you ever felt that sort of stuff. I felt that. Yeah, I sure felt that. 
Um, and, and all of these are very simple, basic level. It's really hard to get to, the di- to, to a, an equally divisive point here, I think. You know, I, I'd say probably when the first, when congregations got the first women priests not expecting it, that was probably a, more akin to this, right? And they would come to the rail and refuse communion, things, things like that. It's a little, little more like this context than, than probably what we're dealing with right now. And how we navigate it, I think, is the hardest thing, you know. I mean, the workbook brings up this interesting dichotomy between being libertine and being moralistic, right? Where you just do whatever you want or curry, go- curry favor with God by earning stuff. <laughs> and they bring up this argument by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in The Cost of Discipleship that grace is, can be given away too cheaply, right? That, that if we just assume that grace is here, that it cheapens it. I'm curious to know if you think that's right. <laughs> well, I that you know, I just wonder if if uh, what you think about cheapening grace. Can grace be cheap? End. Well, we read the workbook, right? I mean, what part of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in The Cost of Discipleship, right, is that, you know, it's really important that we sort of strive and that, you know, he's writing a group of people who sort of say, you know, baptism's their Christian identity, so now they just do whatever they want to do. And that cheapens grace by saying that baptism is sort of like your get-out-of-hell-free card. I mean, that's an interesting way to approach religion in general, right, is it's about a final destination instead of a lifestyle. But I think that's kind of what he's writing to. He's saying, listen, this is not like some sort of get-out-of-hell-free existence. Like there's, there's work and growth and discipleship to be done now. So don't avoid that. If you avoid that, you're cheapening grace. That's sort of his, his language that he uses. To get the free stuff. To get the free grace, so yeah. It really didn't feel free. I, I've known people uh, who have said that their heart is heaviest for those who um, think that they're saved through Christ, but they don't act like it, is what this person said. When I asked for elaboration, she said, well, I mean, you know, you're saved if you believe. But there was a big however, right? <laughs> So, um, yeah, that was. Uh, and that gets back to the faith versus works. Mm-hmm. Oh, let's save that for James. <laughs> Isn't it interesting we read these two together? That was a little bit intentionally. Yeah. Because this one's all about saying get off of get off of your works idea, right? I think maybe another way to put the question, Rini, and maybe this is going to sound too different, but. Um, I think I mentioned this before, you know, my last church, we, um, we got this question about, I, well, I had to take it to be a priest. It's on the, on the clergy bar exam. You know, the local mosque wants to use, uh, is closing, and they want to worship in your church, and what's your response? You know, and, 
And some people said, well, you know, they could come in the parish hall as long as we check the references to make sure they weren't a splinter cell group. I mean, it was just <laughs> that was really interesting, right? Oh, they're going to build bombs uh, in our parish halls. We just check they don't have any, like, weapon supplies. So, so that's how we started. They could come in to the parish hall, but they could not go to the sanctuary because the reserve sacrament is in there, and that's consecrated ground, and they would... Oh, what's the word? It wasn't desecrate. It was defile the reserve sacrament. That's what they said. Where was this? Oh, my last church. And it wasn't anything bad. It was just, it was, it was one, it was a few parishioners who thought about that, you know. Would they defile the consecrated space and defile the reserve sacrament? And I know I'm leading the question a little bit, but I think the question is, can you ever defile a sacrament? Or is that what makes sacraments sacramental, is that they're undefilable? Can grace ever be cheap if it's free? I mean, it didn't get any cheaper than free, <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> so, so isn't the whole point of the church to make grace actually free? Like, isn't the goal to cheapen it more <laughs> so that people can have it? I think the goal of some churches is to, maybe this is a little controversial, but I think the goal of some churches and some faiths is to uh, add more value to it so that way the parishioners feel that they, they are held up by that, that they have something to point at and to say, well, I know that I'm doing good because X, Y, and Z. To have clear markers then. Yeah. To have clear markers for identity. Yeah. That you can say. How can I be wrong? I'm doing everything that's written here. Okay. You know, that kind of thing. too to think you see people that and you wonder you know at the very end if they go okay now I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior at the minute they die or something it's it's good I mean you're glad that they did but then you look and did they just play all this (laughs) and they go okay now I'm safe that's what I I always that's the get out of jail free yeah see that's the Thing I always, or, or I, I wrestle with. I really do because I know people that oh, I'm spiritual, not religious, whatever that means. What does yeah. that mean? And uh, that bothers me. And then I'm, you know, they don't really seem to accept Christ or the stuff. But then I wonder, are they up there too? This is know. such a great question. I think this is such a great question. Um, can I tell you a story or two along the theme? So one is, you know, when I was in high school, we were really warned against that mentality of like converting in the 11th hour. 
because, well, you know, you could die instantly, and there, there would go your 11th hour conversion, you know, so you, so you should be afraid, because <laughs> you might die in a car wreck tonight on the way home, horribly. I mean, a train could hit you, or a meteorite could fall from the sky, you would burst into flames. This happens sometimes, lightning could strike your car tonight. That's the kind of church I went to, by the way. So who wants to get saved now? Um, glory, right? And so really what we said is like, let's be, all be afraid of God. Let's be afraid of God and, and come up now so that you will be less afraid of God, but God is still very scary. And, and we were cast as teenagers, well, you know, drinking and dancing and rock and roll, Dungeons and Dragons, other satanic activities. They're very alluring. Won't be much fun in hell. <laughs> Don't do them. And they may not actually be that fun. But really what we believed is they were very fun. And we shouldn't do them because if we had the fun now, God would punish us later because the truth is God doesn't actually want us to enjoy ourselves. That was the hidden message behind all of it. Because the best testimonies were from the alcoholics and the crack addicts who gave their life to Jesus and went crack free. And of course, we always wondered, how much fun was all that stuff? <laughs> uh, just honestly. Because for us, it was really about God wants to deprive you of fun so that when you do that, you get a reward. Which is not grace, by the way. That's like some really strange, masochistic, uh, merit-based heaven system, which doesn't exist biblically. Um, that's a great question, isn't it? So, um, I don't know the answer to that. When we were kids, it was God's riches at Christ's expense, which is kind of yucky. Yeah, his little acrostic, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's a little bit yucky. So, I think, what, I think the best idea for grace is, like, comes to me from how I went from Southern Baptist to, like, working the Methodist Church. Unmerited favor, maybe, but... Um, problem with saying unmerited favor is that it kind of can reinforce like oh I'm not worthy of it instead of like I'm grateful for it. <laughs> you, do you know what I mean? Depending on your religious um, biography. So when I was, a, I wasn't even a Southern Baptist. I grew up right of that and if you didn't get baptized in water adult immersion you were going to hell. I did it when I was 10 because I was an adult um, <clears throat> and we just knew that and, and by the way, that is the biblical thing, is like a baptism for adults, right? There's no babies baptized in the Bible. It just doesn't happen. So I went to the Methodist church because I was working there, uh, and um, they were baptizing babies, and initially I was like, gosh, this is unbiblical, therefore wrong. And, you know, you, you read about what John Wesley says, and, <clears throat> and my take, this is, John Wesley's probably not this cynical. He talks about different kinds of grace, Prevenient grace, which is like there regardless of your awareness of it, is sort of God's presence in your life. And justifying grace and sanctifying grace. And there's moments, milestones where you get these different things, right? And <clears throat> condensed version of Wesley through my own, you know, neuroses is that, you know, you baptize a baby 
they really don't have any choice in the matter, and nor do they have any choice about the presence of God's grace in their lives. It will always, frankly, be there, <laughs> especially if they don't want it. That's a weird symbol if you push it too hard, but that's this idea, right, that God's presence is always there. And of course, you've got to even free it from baptism because putting water on a kid doesn't make God's grace appear. It represents what's already been there. And that's very cheap, <laughs> abundantly cheap, because it's everywhere. Somebody this morning said, well, what's the difference between grace and a miracle? And I think miracles must be the moments where like, we're aware of it. <laughs> aware of this grace that has always been there, whether that means you have a palsied limb that's made whole or somebody smiles at you and it changes your day. So I think there's this whole question bound up that I'm not doing a good job addressing, which is like, what are the limits of God's presence? Therefore, God's grace, right? Does, is God present in judgment or grace? I mean, maybe both, I guess. Um, but I think that's what these people are struggling with. And is God more present in circumcised people who don't eat fruit bats and rock badgers? Or is God equally present in uncircumcised white trash? And of course, the hardest thing for us, right, is that in some ways we can be more judgmental about fellow Christians than even people adherents of different religions. Because the one thing you'll never do with a fellow Christian of a different denomination is have a Eucharist together. <laughs> Which is sort of weird, isn't it? That's the kind of stuff Paul's talking about. Right? And in some ways, I get why we gravitate to different denominations. I mean, I, listen, if I wasn't, if, if there wasn't an Episcopal church, I'd be done. I just would be done. I'd probably be teaching math still. So, kind of glad there's this, because, <laughs> yeah, right, I'm kind of glad there's this. Anyway, so, but this was my last stop. It just it was my last stop, you know, and, and I really believe in Christian unity, but at the same time, like, I don't want to sacrifice things that I hold really, really dear all the time, you know, and, 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 and these are two different realities that I think we have to live with. And they're hard. And, you know, my first church, everybody, when they, before they sat in the pew, they would genuflect. And I love that when people did that. I see a few people do it here, and I'm so glad people know how to do the right thing. You know, I just, I love that they do that. Um, and, of course, I put up with people that don't do that, and I'm being kind of silly, right? But, but I think the thing that anchors us, really, and you've been doing this for a long time here, is this openness at the Eucharist, that regardless of, you know, whether you've been baptized or you're Jewish, if you want to come, then you just come. And, and like that seems to be what Paul's saying is, uh, is the definition of unity instead of uniformity, right? Is that we're committed at least at God's table to saying the table is open for you. And, and I, and I kind of think that Ionic prayer that we do, you know, from the Iona worship book every week, it doesn't really get old to me. In fact, it actually centers me in why we do it every single week. Um, it's for people who doubt, and it doesn't belong to the church, and it belongs to God. And, and that, that seems to be what Paul's sort of trying to say. And then the logical conclusion of that is wild. 
and we haven't lived into the logical conclusion of that. And the hard thing is, right, because I have a daughter, and we have kids and all that, people that we love, and we say, you know, if somebody's in need, you help them, but don't put yourself in risk. And those are lines we continue to walk. And I don't just mean helping people. I mean your religious identity and what's important to you as you interact with other people and say God's grace is abundant and clear in you and I can affirm it. <sighs> but I'm also committed to this rule of life that I have for myself. And, and how we do that without one-upping each other I think is just a really huge struggle. So we come back to the Eucharist, <laughs> right? I mean, I think, I think that's why we come back to the Eucharist. Because it's a, a sidebar to that is that our children are invited. They get returned away no names, like regardless of their age. They don't have to go through, you know, first communion to be welcome at God's table. Uh, I think that's fairly important. I think so too, because they don't have to earn it by virtue of being a certain age or having gone through a certain class. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think. Yeah, and I, th I think there is an argument, and I, and I don't think it's bad necessarily, but you know, like, you want children to understand what they're really doing before they do it but at the same time what better way to understand it than by doing it right <laughs> and this is like an interesting bit right that we that we sort of wrestle our heads around and, and i don't mean like we do it better here i just that anchor of inclusion seems to be what paul's really pushing at Certainly hope so. <laughs> yeah. It seems right. I mean, he tells you in here that he's ruminated for 14 years. And these are all his ideas that came to him from God, not from the disciples. So he wasn't stealing from them. But, but yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's definitely seems to be some progression. And here he is pushing the ideological principle really hard. He, he does do something, maybe to point out one bit, and then let's hop to James, unless I'm leaving something out for you. At the end, he talks about this difference between flesh and spirit. And in Greek, those are the words sarx and soma. And it's, it's really 
<coughs> easy for us to read in, oh yeah, like body, that's bad, spirit, that's really good. But Paul being Jewish would not have believed that. That's a Neoplatonic idea, it's a Greek idea, and it's, it's not, and frankly, it's not even that good of a Greek, because you know, the epitome of human perfection is the male body. So the body's not a prison for the soul. That, I mean, that really is like post-Augustine, that's a Manichaean idea about good, bad sort of thing. I think really probably what Paul is trying to say is that we have a cultural reality that we live in and then there's God's imagination. <laughs> and the cultural reality is part of being enfleshed. It includes things like stereotypes which serve us sometimes well, sometimes well, and sometimes very poorly. That's what it means to be embodied culturally. And then there's this new way of interacting that is God's imagination for the world. So the question is, are we going to live in this enfleshed way only, or are we going to breathe deeply from what God has in mind for us? Right? And this sort of, the way I got passed down was, well, there's flesh and spirit, and flesh is bad. Bodies are bad. People are bad. And that's not a good read. It's very puritanical, but it's not a good read. Remember, the human beings are called very good. And Jesus takes on skin, <laughs> which is just all right. You know, like it's just all right. So, so I just hope to raise that, that other bit for you. Any, any other thoughts on le- before leaving Galatians? Sorry, I just kind of yammered on. Um, where? By a mediator or intermediary. So you don't have angels? I do. Uh, my, you know, I'm reading the NRSV. Why then the law it was added because of transgressions until the offspring would come to whom the promise had been made and it was ordained through angels by a mediator. Hmm. I don't know what that means. Sorry. Oh. Well, who alters the gospel? Yeah, who alters the gospel? No. So remember, angel means messenger. Angel means messenger. And quite honestly, that could be a human being. Or I suppose it could be the archangel Jibreel, right? Gabriel. I mean, it, it could be. It could be a thing, you know. But remember, like, especially in the Hebrew Bible, angels aren't, like, there's, angel means sort of, it's all complicated, right? Cherubs have four faces, and they're covered with eyeballs. 
and seraphs are snakes with wings that are on fire all the time. So there's no anthropoid angels in the Hebrew Bible. There's messengers, four-faced, eyeball-covered things, and flying snakes that are on fire. And then in the New Testament, right, which is, remember, why anytime an angel shows up, they have to say, don't be afraid. (laughs) That's critical when you're seeing a four-faced, eyeball-covered thing or a flying snake on fire. Um, And then the nuancing in Greek is a little more difficult, but the the cherub thing with the wings is like Raphael, not the Bible. So what if you said, I mean, angel just means messenger. It does, right? So Paul says, if we or a messenger from heaven, I suppose that could be a beastly thing or a winged thing or just another prophet, says something different, don't buy it. And now, you know, messengers from God mediate the law. Messengers, yeah, it could be Moses, sure. He's the mediator for the people, right? He's the one who reveals the Torah to them. In that sense, Moses is an angel. Lots of options. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this is not referring to superhuman beings, but I'm saying it doesn't have to. I think he's really, st- I, I, I do think he really struggles with, you know, if the law is so good, why doesn't everybody need to do it? <laughs> he seems really committed to keeping it himself, but he doesn't impose it on other people. I mean, he's trying, and how do you have your cake and eat that too? That's just really hard. And I don't know how you do that. You, you probably try and mess up. You know, he says, don't get circumcised, but then he takes Timothy and circumcises him. You know, but I didn't do it to Titus, but you did do it to Timothy. You, 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 I mean, he, like all of us, is not like, like internally coherent. <laughs> or there's rules and there's practicalities, you know? I mean, in general, like, I don't think I should have to do certain things, but I will do them in the presence of the police. I mean, you, you know, I mean, that's just practicality. Okay, how about James? It's a little bit of a different read, isn't it? <coughs> Can I just highlight a few things? You know, this is where we get two of our seven sacraments. If anyone's sick, pray over them and anoint them with oil. That's unction. Now, we don't know if the early church decided to do that, but you know the oiling, remember, that's when you made someone a king, you dumped oil on them. Um, I don't know when the Christian community decided to do that to sick people too. And think about the symbol transformation, right? That's how you make a king. So when somebody is hard off, you anointing them with oil is sort of saying that they represent royalty to your community and God. Like precisely in their need is when they are royally important to God and the community, which is why we continue to do this thing which is like very countercultural because we use shampoo, we don't put oil in our hair. You, you know what I mean? Anybody just put oil in their hair? That would, oh, okay. That, that, that's the thing that you, oh, God, God, I probably should actually. My, my oil is called pomade, so I pretend like it's not oil. 
Yeah, if I don't, then, then uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty wild, as you've seen, no doubt. Um, but we do this thing that is no longer in some ways culturally rev- relevant because it's become historically relevant. Has anybody been anointed with oil before? Just out of curiosity. Was it religiously significant for you, even though it's culturally irrelevant? Was it a religiously significant experience to be anointed with oil? No, it's that's dotting. That's dotting. Because if we poured, maybe because it only happens in the church. You know what I mean? Like you know, it's a churchy thing, because it's so culturally irrelevant. Nobody would do it except a church, or <laughs> so. Right? I mean. My brother blesses his children all the time as a non-rabbi. Like, this is a Jewish thing as you bless your kids. Every Shabbat, he gives them a blessing. That's an interesting thing. Um, we didn't have these in the Baptist church. We didn't have oils. I mean, I guess you could have gone rogue and just bought some, but it, like, it wasn't a thing. So, so when I got to the Episcopal church, like, we got it. And I'm going to tell you, I'm a big believer in the oils. Like, I almost push the oils aggressively on people because... I don't know why. I don't know if it's because, like, it's one thing to pray for somebody, and it's another thing to pray for somebody by putting your hands on them. And, and maybe it's like that connection, but I would tell you probably 90% of the time I use the oils, I, I feel a connection that I didn't think I would have felt without the oils. And I don't know if it's the oil or my hand. I, we don't get it much as priests, even though you can do it. Like, you don't have to be a priest to do that. Did you know that, by the way? You can go around anointing people with oil as much as you want. And you don't even have to be a bishop to consecrate the oil. A priest can do that. I can consecrate some oil for you, and you can go around. And when you see somebody having a bad day, say, you seem to be having a bad day. Can I anoint you with oil and pray for you? And that would be totally within your rights as a human being and a Christian, and an Episcopalian, and a lay minister. You just can't consecrate the oil yourself. Like, that's the only deal, right? Now, I'm really good. I bought some oil, and I had a bishop pray the priest's prayer, so it's like double good, you know? <clears throat> Maybe that's why the oil works for me. But, but it does seem to work. I just honestly, if you've never had it, um, it's just it's really an, an intimate experience. It really, it really is. My, my goal is that when, when we get the, um, soon, that when, when, when we get some benches in the chapel after the Eucharist, we'll have healing prayers available by some lay ministers who join the Order of St. Luke's, you know, the physician or whatever. Um, James also says, confess your sins. Confess your sins to one another being forgiven. So there's the sacrament of reconciliation. That's two of the seven come up out of James. Now, you may not know this. Martin Luther hated the book so much he called it a strawy epistle and reorganized the canon in his German Bible, putting it after Revelation. If it were up to Luther, he would have preferred to not include it at all. And Luther was not alone. Actually, at the Council of Chalcedon in 385, James barely made it in. The shepherd of Hermas, 
did not make it in, I thank God for that every day because if you read it, it's like Moulin Rouge. There's fairies, and like not really, but there's, it's sort of like, like uh, w- drinking a lot of absinthe will do to you. I mean, I don't know that firsthand, but having seen the movie, it seems very absinthe-inspired. So if you want to read The Shepherd of Hermas, you can Google it, and it is weird. And James just isn't weird. This is not. It seems actually very practical. In fact, it's called New Testament or Christian wisdom. So it'd be like the equivalent of Proverbs in the New Testament. It actually repeats itself entirely. The first chapter is what's called the epitome of James because James goes on to repeat everything. It it returns to everything in chapter 1 a little bit further. So I went from the back forward to the epitome Lots of really things, like fantastic things, like don't show favoritism. Um, This is a great one, isn't it? Don't judge other people, God will. And And this comes back to what I wanted to say, Mona, earlier about looking at other people and, wow, like, doesn't that seem right or wrong? And, and, you know, when I was, I was, um, this is my other story, is I um, was teaching math at a fundamentalist Christian school, and I really wanted to teach Bible, and they sort of let me. They were really worried it was going to work out. They were right. It didn't work out. Um, (laughs) But during my interview, the Bible department chair said something like, well, are you an exclusivist, an inclusivist, or a universalist? Right, so you only get to heaven if you know Jesus by name. God can deal with you if you don't. Everybody gets in. It was clear what was the wrong answer. (laughs) So what did I say? I said, you know, I think in the way we live, it's probably important to act like exclusivists, like it's very important to share good news. But I sure hope God's an inclusivist, don't you? And the answer I got back was, no. (laughs) No, I'm pretty sure God's exclusive, which is why I am. Now, this is an interesting thing, right? So you can say, well, I don't need to judge you because God will when God puts you in hell for being such a bad person because you gossiped. I don't think that's what James has in mind. I, I don't think James is saying suspend judgment like that. I think James is sort of suggesting that we look one at one another and say like, while well, it is so different and possibly wrong and if God needs to deal with it, God will, so I don't need to do, deal with that. Which is sort of an interesting thing. There are some things that cannot wait for God to deal with, we know, right? Some things we do need to go ahead and deal with. Uh, but that's an interesting bit. And then I think the question that James doesn't ask us to consider, but I think we're asked to consider when we think about grace, how do we hope God will deal with those things? I just think that's a really good follow-up. Will God be extremely draconian or Spartan and throw the book at people because they dropped the kneeler in church and interrupted one of my finer sermons? You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, this happened. I was, re- I was really a good sermon and someone dropped the kneeler, you know, and I'm pretty sure God is going to give them 10 minutes in hell for that. Um, <laughs> But don't we hope not? Do, do we not hope not? You know, I mean, I think that's part of what James asks us to consider is what we actually hope. And the hope bit informs what we do. So if we, if we are hopeful enough to suspend judgment because God can actually deal with it affirmatively, then maybe we can start behaving that way now. 
so that what we don't do is just say, well, God will get you later, but, you know, it's probably not as important as I was thinking it was, and what an interesting and unique approach you have. (laughs) (coughs) One way to read James is, let's be tolerant of one another. Another way to read James is, let's be affirmative of one another. Surely God is not asking us just to be tolerant. And actually, I think that blends with Galatians quite well. We can be different and affirm differences instead of having to put up with them. Well, Luther's big deal was, you know, he, he thought it was about works, right? And, and, and because there's this line, faith without works is dead. And for Luther, you know, his biggest problem was to be absolved in the Catholic Church through this sacrament of confession, you had to do penance and you had to have contrition. And Luther's big question was, how do I know if I'm contrite enough? And he never was sure he felt sorry enough. Even though the abbot above him was like, God, Martin, you're like, you're too sorry. You know, <laughs> like, be less sorry, <laughs> which is an interesting thing for an abbot to say. So what Luther decided is, frankly, he never could be sorry enough. No one can be sorry enough because we're wretched. I mean, his conclusion was we're totally depraved of the image and likeness of God. You've heard that before. It's tea and tulip for hyper-Calvinism. We're totally depraved. But some people God overturns that condition for, unearned, unmerited, and we just rejoice in that. So to hear anything about works seems to be challenging God the giver and challenging our utter wretchedness. It challenges both things because utterly wretched, totally depraved people can't earn anything. It's not possible. Some of his fundamental assumptions, I think, are actually a little bit dangerous. I want to suggest to you, like total depravity of the image of God, that is not biblical, for one thing, and it just seems very dangerous because if other people don't have God's image, then you can treat them like objects. And Luther believed in slavery. What do you know? Slavery under a kinder name called feudal serfdom. And that was his big trouble, that one bit. James says something really interesting that, that I've referred to before. John Wesley read this. James says that sin is when you knowingly miss the right thing. Like you, you know the right thing and you miss it on purpose. And John Wesley's read of James then is that ignorance is not sin because you didn't know that you were missing the right thing. Although Wesley says that willful ignorance is sinful. <laughs> Now, that's interesting to think about, isn't it? Willful ignorance. I've had willful ignorance happen in my life before, you know, where I had like a label or a stereotype and I met someone who defied it and I wouldn't let them. That's willful ignorance. And of course, that's sinful. I mean, it has to be sinful. That is the absence of God's presence in my life because I'm closed off to it being in the other person.
James does not have a lot of good things to say about the tongue. <laughs> but contextually, remember, he's talking about teachers. He's talking about teachers and, and, and how important it is for what we say, which comes back to that metaphor that Paul was using about the son of the slave children. I mean, that's just a dangerous thing to say in the pulpit, you know, or to talk about blindness of people. Well, like if you're, if you're physically blind, it's really hard not to feel like less than a human being because there's so much about blindness. And I know this is going to sound funny to you, but for a long time, the metaphor, the dominant metaphor is dark is bad and light is good, and that got put on people's skin tone. And how do we avoid using language that doesn't do that? I mean, I don't know the answer, but it seems important that we try. I mean, that's what James seems to be saying, right, is that we need to be conscientious about that, you know, and it's, there's this really interesting trend in America that's really ripened about two years ago, the I'm tired of political correctness trend, which is interesting because to me there's a difference between political correctness and like social justice, right? I mean, and, and some people seem to have those categories mixed up right? Like, oh, like I used to be able to call women diminutive names and now I can't. That's just political correctness. No, no, that's social justice. <laughs> like, like this, this, this needs to be like, like the, the difference that we can articulate that I don't think we've articulated, right? I was talking to my teenage boy the other day about this, and this remains true, and I think we all know this, right? If a teenage girl particularly has intimate relationships with a teenage boy, there are several words for her. She is, among other things, a fishmonger's daughter, the Shakespearean, but in general, ho-slut-whore. There is a joking term for boys, man-whore, but it's a joke because the truth is there is not a male equivalent for a single one of those terms. Gigolo, that's a joke. Nobody's a gigolo. Boys are players and pimps, and women are whores. This is what James is talking about. <laughs> a bifurcated spring. How can fresh water and salt water come from the same source? And that is the difference between political correctness and justice in what we say. And of course, what's interesting, right, is the last election was nauseating. Because, and I'm not picking on any one person, right? Again, the curious thing is we, uh, my parents told me what words not to use in the home and what not to call other people. And here were people doing it on TV. And they were like, yay, we're voting for that person. And it was like, wait a minute. Like, you spent my whole childhood telling me not to talk like that in private, let alone in public. Oh, but they're just telling it like it is. Yes, unjust is what they're telling us. And that's, I mean, this is right here in James, I think, which is why words are so important for us in the Episcopal Church, right, rightly so. A little preachy, sorry. It's the call, you know, here. <laughs> Let's, if I'd worn the khaki pants, I would have been off duty. I would have been off duty. 
think I've had people ask me, like, if I'm allowed to take it off. <laughs> oh, no. I sleep in this plastic. Some people mow their grass in that thing, I want you to know. And I've had really good mentorship that was like, don't do that. <laughs> don't, don't do that. Yeah, anyway. What else did I miss in James for you, or that was intriguing in our last couple of minutes? Yeah, you know, what's interesting, though, is to think about... This is such an interesting book. You know, if you ever want to read, like, an in-depth affirmative spirituality, pick up a book by a Jesuit, because Jesuits seem to be uniquely gifted in, like, being unimaginative... I mean, like, going beyond what you'd imagine in the affirmation category, right? And one of them sort of says, sometimes we wonder why God doesn't answer our prayers. So we have questions and God doesn't seem to be answering. And this is such a total Jesuit thing to do. Who spoke first? (laughs) Well, God spoke first. So prayer is not when we talk to God, it's when we answer God. I mean, this is sort of just a really interesting way to think, to rethink the whole relationship, right? And if you draw near to God, draw will, God will draw near to you. Is that the case? Or when I draw near to God, I realize God has been closer to me, to quote the Quran, than my jugular vein all along. I mean, this, this, is, this is the way Jesuits frame things, right? Is God actually distant from us, or even at our greatest point of distance from God, we're somehow profoundly present? This is what mystics do for us, right? Mystics are the ones who have these kind of realizations that that sound great poetic and then we struggle our lives to like to back into some semblance of believing that. I don't know what James believes, but that's what I think. Rilke is the one who says faith and love are always in us. We're not always in faith and love. And also, bidden or unbidden, faith is ripening. Resist the devil? Yeah, so resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And remember, again, the concept of Satan is not the red, the red guy in the suit, right? This is still the Yetzer Harah, the, the one who tempts you for the purpose of you picking the right, the better decision. Or this is the one in Job who goes around accusing you and you resist the accusation by, by being righteous. <laughs> and then the accusation will flee. Lots of options. Or you could say, you know, that the devil has a pitchfork and shows up on your shoulder and is like the king of hell. And I mean, you could, you could do that. And, I, and maybe he will flee from you. But if the devil is all that much powerful, I don't see why he would ever have to get away from you. This is a good thing about our language. The devil is always male. <laughs> this is good, right? It's actually kind of surprising. What's that? Well, in our parlance, always. I never hear anybody say Satan, she. It's, it's interesting, right? Because 
Because in general, going back to our teenage example, right, it's the girl's fault, not the boy's. Which is why we put women in burkas, right? Because women, you ask for it. See, again, if we culturally had figured out it's the boy's fault, then boys would wear bandanas, <laughs> which actually is a lot more logical, right? If it's, if it's your problem, then cover your eyes up. <laughs> it just makes so much more sense. Yeah, but at least the devil's a boy too. Anyway. <laughs> well, we do. We do, and that is a tough word. It's tough to be called a she-devil. Yeah. <coughs> well, I, I, he was a stylish one. Very good. Very good. Yes, possibly even a cross-dresser. Um, so, <coughs> I think Prada makes only feminine accoutrements. Am I, am I wrong? Oh, Prada does make shoes for men, right? I'm undermining the whole t- thing here. Okay, hey, so uh, we get to read... Um, we get to read the Timothys next week and see a different side of Paul giving us. Uh, so you, you know, we, ha- we are four weeks away from finishing our time together, which is hard to believe. Uh, but I will see you next week for the Timothys and Titus.